Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into the vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, You also may go into my vineyard, and I will give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around, said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one would hire us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on one denarian? Take what is yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I am so generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Linda. Now growing up, you may have had certain words or phrases that would have gotten you into some serious trouble if your parents would have heard you say them. Or maybe your grandparents. Maybe some of you were allowed to cuss in front of grown-ups. Others of you may have been on high alert not to even use words that sort of reminded you of a cuss word. I'm going to tell on myself here this morning. You ready? We went out west this, this summer, as you know, and we went and visited the Hoover Dam, and we were getting out of the car, we're about to walk into the Hoover Dam, and again, whether you think this is a notch up on my belt or a notch below my belt, you'll decide. I turned around to the kids, and I was like, kids, as long as we're here today on this property, you can use the word dam anytime you want. <laughs> it took a while for them to realize, was I just sort of baiting them? But eventually, we're sitting there, and I won't say which one of my kids, but we're waiting, and finally, I hear this little voice go, when's the damn tour going to (laughs) start? 
<laughs> so, uh, you, you know, I, that's funny. We're having fun. Whether you like that or not, that, that's funny. But I, I use that to say this. There's a word in our house that is not allowed to be said. And the kids know, and there's a lot of things, but there's this one word that if they say it, we, they know we're immediately going to say that word's not to be used in this house. And it starts with F. Now, the word is fair. I don't know where your mind went, but the word is fair, okay? That word is not to be used in our house. If our kids say to us, Dad, that's not fair, we simply say, that's not a word we use. That's not a concept that we use because it's not a concept that exists in the world. I don't want to teach my children that things are fair, because things are not fair. The world is not fair. Now, for our up-and-coming Ecclesiastes scholars, you know we talked about this in our last session, right? That because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, the world has been full of sin and now is no longer fair. We talked about unfairness. We talked about injustice. We looked at these two particular passages in Ecclesiastes. The first one was 3.16. It says, I also observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse one, it says, again, I observed all of the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. This whole parable that Jesus is telling to the disciples is all about fairness and their idea of it. And Jesus is going to show us how in this parable, these workers sort of rise up in anger when they think that the owner is being unfair. But in fact, he's not being unfair at all. He's being gracious. And that's what we're going to see in this parable today. So before we get into our text, let's take a moment just to ready our hearts to receive the word of God. We do this by taking a moment of silence and asking that the spirit of God open our ears to hear, to renew our minds and make our hearts soft. And if, if during this time you find your mind wandering, maybe being bombarded with thoughts, simply pray this prayer to yourself. Holy Spirit, give me ears to hear. Amen. And this parable today is sort of in response to, or if you want to say it this way, a continuation of a question that Peter asked Jesus back in chapter 19. So if you look back at chapter 19, verse 27, here's what Peter said. He said, Peter responded, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will be there for us? Peter's making sure and wondering, hey, Lord, like we've done this. We've left our homes. We've left our relationship. Are you going to reward us? And so we see Jesus responding well. And if you notice in the last verse of verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. And so Jesus is continuing on this thought and this idea of the first will be last and last will be first. And that's what he is giving this parable for. But I love this parable because what Jesus shows them and how he shows us is how gracious he is with this gift of eternal life to ensure that the disciples will stay grounded as they're hearing it. Verse one in chapter 20, the first phrase of it says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. 
We need to start there. Jesus is telling this parable to give a picture and a depiction of what the kingdom of heaven is like. This parable is all about eternal life and all about salvation. So let's make sure we understand that that's what Jesus is teaching us about here when he's telling us in this parable. And he says it right here in in verse one. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. This is how someone enters into the kingdom of heaven. And the first person we see here and we hear about is this landowner. And so just so we're understanding and the understanding of the correlation, this landowner is also depicting Jesus. So Jesus all throughout, the landowner all throughout this parable, you can input and understand that it's Jesus talking about himself in that position. Jesus is the owner of the vineyard. He is the one who goes out to find the workers in this parable. And again, we could say this, Jesus is going out to save those whom the father has given him and he brings them into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this parable is going to show us. It's the landowner who goes after the workers to bring them to Jesus. So he then draws them to himself. And we see this landowner doing what is very customary for those in need of workers. And so they would go and find workers in the market square, in the city square. That's where they would be. And he would go and find them and bring them in to help till and tend to his vineyard. Verse 2 says, after agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. He finds this group of workers. He brings them to the vineyard and says, hey, I'm bringing you into my land and I want you to work and help build up this vineyard. And they agree. They talk about the payment, one denarius. And they all are happy with that. They all agree to it. Therefore, they go and they start out to work. Well, look at verses three and four. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. So the first set of workers that he found early in the morning, they talked, they discussed about payment, they agreed upon payment, and he sent them off. It's a little bit different here, isn't it? Jesus goes and finds, the vineyard owner goes and finds this group at about nine in the morning. And he calls them into work as well. But notice that he says they were doing nothing. Now, before we jump the gun and think, oh, these workers were just being lazy. That's what Jesus means. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. And we need to understand that, that why Jesus says that these workers were doing nothing, and that's why he describes them this way in this parable. What Jesus is pointing out is that they are doing nothing to, again, show us that there is no way that we can earn our way into salvation. You see that? They're doing nothing. They're doing nothing, yet they were still chosen. They're doing nothing, yet they are still brought in to come. They are idle, but he still calls them in. 
And then also notice, unlike the first group of workers, they did not agree on terms up front, did they? He simply said, I'll give you whatever is right. So they didn't agree on the one denarius, not this group. They simply took this vineyard owner at his word and said, okay, you said you'll give us what is right. We believe you, we'll trust you, and now we'll go to work. They trusted this owner, took him as a man of his word, and off they went. Verse 5 says, he did this again at about noon and about 3. He went out again and did the same thing. I love this because what it shows us is a picture of Jesus who is continually going after and going after and going after and going after. He didn't just settle with the first group. He continued to go and to find He's constantly calling people to himself, even at different times of the day. We could also interpret this at different times in their lives. This means that at any point in someone's life, Jesus can call them into the kingdom of heaven. At any point. Whether it's the 6 a.m. group, the 9 a.m., the noon group, at any point on someone's life, They can be called in to the kingdom of heaven. You know what that tells us? Don't give up. Don't give up on anyone. Don't give up on anyone who may not have been called into the kingdom yet. And you look at their life and go, there's no way. They've done too much. Or it's how long are they going to wait? No, the Lord at any moment in their life can call them into the kingdom. Don't stop praying for them. Don't start going after them. Don't start loving them and caring for them. There's no age that is too far gone. As long as there is breath in their lungs, they are still able to be called into the kingdom of heaven. But verse 6 and 7, we get this interesting perspective. It says, he went out at about 5, and he found others standing around, and he said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Again, this vineyard owner is going out again and finding workers and they're standing idle. Now, the day of work would typically be from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So don't you find it odd that at 5 p.m., with an hour left in the day, the vineyard owner is still going out to look for workers? But the day is not done. The time has not come to stop the work And even at 5 p.m., with only an hour left, he goes and he finds this other group of workers. Now, we're not given this direct detail here in Scripture as to why these workers are still waiting. We're we're not given any description of them other than they're still there at 5 and they're still standing idly by doing nothing. So I want us to take, anytime I'm taking sort of a outside of the text perspective, I always tend to like stand over here just to give you an understanding. Like what I'm about to say is not directly in scripture, 
But what I have in learning and studying over this passage, scholars have kind of lended some contextual, cultural context to give us some understanding as to why these people might still be standing there at 5 p.m. Again, this is all assumption. This is not scripture. This is based on culture, okay? But if you think about it, if you're a vineyard owner, and you're going out to look for the workers that would help you get your vineyard in order. What are you looking for most likely? Strongest? Skilled? Young? What's that? Healthy? Strong? Yeah. You're looking for the cream of the crop, right? You're looking for those who would offer you the most ability, the most reason to get your work done in that period of time, right? So if you think about it in those terms, most likely the people who are left, who at five o'clock are still needing work, are probably the less skilled, are probably those who may have a physical disability or something keeping and preventing them from being able to do the work fully. They would have been those who have been overlooked. They would have been those that no one else wanted except the vineyard owner said, come on in. He didn't leave them standing at five o'clock. They may not have been able to offer him anything other than just a warm body. But you know what? He saw value and worth in their brokenness. He saw value and worth even though everybody else had overlooked them. At five o'clock when the last hour was waiting, the vineyard worker or the vineyard owner still said, come on in. That's hope. That's hope that the kingdom of heaven is not filled with those who are skilled, who are young, who are strong, who are able to do all the work. No, he brought in those who had been overlooked to stand in place alongside those who may have been chosen early. There is no qualification to entering into the kingdom of heaven. There is no ability, there is no strength, there is no anything other than the vineyard owner saying, hey you, come on in. Hey you, come on in. It's five o'clock, but come on in. Jesus calls in the weak. Jesus calls in the seemingly useless. He calls in those overlooked by everyone else. We can't be good enough. We can't be strong enough. We can't have the best resume ready to stand before him and go, look how much I have to offer you. None of that matters. The only way, the only qualification to entering into the kingdom of heaven is simply by the sovereign grace of God the Father. But there's something else we can see here that I've already sort of mentioned. 
Again, if we look at that time scale as someone's life and we say that the beginning of their life is 6 a.m. and the end of their life is 6 p.m., Jesus still calls them in with an hour left. So someone, even at the end of their life, can be called into the kingdom of heaven, which means that it's never too late. It's never too late. Even if you have lived a full life of sin up to this point, even if you are on your deathbed, if you repent and confess and believe before your last breath is taken, you will be saved, you will be invited in. Again, for our family members who are not believers yet, don't stop. As long as they are still on this earth, as long as they have breath in their lungs, there is still time for the Lord to say, come on in. Come be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But now the day is over. The working day has ended. And so now we see in verse 8, when evening has come, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. What an interesting order that he calls the foreman to pay them in. So those workers who had just come in at five o'clock would be given their pay first and then in descending order to where the last people that would receive their wages for the day would be those who were called in at 6 a.m. And in verse nine, when those who were hired at about five came, they each received one denarius. These workers have only been working one hour. They came in at five, at the end of the working day, and they were paid one denarius. How much did the 6 a.m. workers agree that their payment would be for a full day's work of labor? Okay, you can say it. One denarius, right? All right. One denarius. So these workers who have only worked one hour have already been paid the same amount for their one hour of work that the workers who have been around and agreed to work all day long have been paid. Let's see how that goes. Look, look at the first part of verse 10. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. Let's stop right there. So here everyone is lined up. And the first set of workers that have been working all day long, they see that the five o'clock guys who'd only been here an hour got paid one denarius. And they're thinking, oh boy, that bonus check is going to be slamming, right? If the guys who only worked one hour got one denarius, then us 6 a.m. boys are about to receive the bonus check that Clark Griswold was ready to see to put in the pool. He thought it was coming. They're already in their mind adding a bunch of zeros, right? They've worked over 10 times longer than these dudes. 
But what happened? It didn't work out the way they thought, did it? Look at verses 10 through 12. But they also received a denarius each. And when they received it, listen, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. Their self-righteousness is peaking, right? We see indignation towards this landowner. How dare he pay us the same as the ones who just showed up? How dare they get the same treatment that we got? We've been out here working. We've been out here carrying this burden all day long. We have been suffering in this heat for over 12 hours, and we get the same of they do? That's not fair. Oh, there's that word again. Fair. So how does the vineyard owner respond? How does Jesus respond to us? Look at the rest of the passage, verses 13 through 16. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first last. I imagine the countenance changed. I imagine that the 6 a.m. workers may have gotten it rather quickly, at least we hope. These workers that have been in such consternation, they have forgotten how quickly they forgot what happened to them. I imagine this is like how Job and, and, and is having his, his discussion and saying, hey, I, what are you doing here? And, and the creator looks back at him and says, oh, where were you when I formed the world into existence? <laughs> where were you when I caused the land and the sea to rise? That same sort of feeling I believe is what's happening here to these workers who were so indignation, so right to say, wait a minute, this is not fair. But then they realized they too were just standing idly by. They too were standing and doing nothing and the owner came and chose them. They had forgotten that it was only through his generosity and his grace that they too were in the same position. Yeah, they worked longer. But the reward given had nothing to do with the amount of work. You see that? The reward given to all of these workers had nothing to do with the amount of work. It had simply been given because grace was shown to them by the vineyard owner. 
Now again, these 6 a.m. workers, they could have kept on in their indignation. They could have kept complaining about things not being fair, but instead they realized that they too had not deserved to be chosen by the vineyard owner. They had not done anything to receive that opportunity from him. It was simply out of the pure grace shown by the vineyard owner that they too were chosen and brought into the kingdom of heaven. All in this parable, all the workers were given the same reward of one denarius. But if you understand the correlation of what Jesus is talking about, that reward is eternal life. And so whether someone is called into the kingdom young in their life or whether someone is called into the kingdom at an older age, the reward is the same, eternal life. And I think one of the greatest examples of this that we see in all throughout scripture is the thief on the cross. Literally in some of his final breaths, he professed Jesus as the Christ and was brought into heaven. I, say, I think we've sometimes, as we said last week, we've made salvation out to be something that we achieve through rituals and we forget that our theology of salvation must fit the thief on the cross. Our doctrine of salvation must line up with the thief on the cross. On the cross. There is no special case in the kingdom of heaven. If there were, then these workers would have been paid differently. But Jesus shows that either the 6 a.m. all the way to the 5 p.m., they all receive the same reward of eternal life. But sometimes do we say, well, really, if you're really saved, then you have to be baptized. How'd that work with the thief on the cross? If you're really saved, not only do you have to be baptized, you have to be baptized and certain words have to be said over you while you're being baptized. It has to be spoken exactly a certain way and then you're actually saved. How'd that work for the thief on the cross? Well, to be really saved, you've got to be able to articulate the doctrine of justification and substitutionary atonement. That doesn't fit with the thief on the cross. Well, to be saved, you have to walk an aisle and say a prayer, right? That doesn't fit with the thief on the cross. In order to receive the reward of eternal life, you simply have to be called by Jesus. And once the Spirit of God reveals that calling to you, you repent, you confess, and you believe. That fits. That fits. So there are many applications that we could take away from this parable, but here, here's just a few that I want us to think about. The first one is if you're an unbeliever. You, you've not professed Jesus as Lord, you've not repented of your sins, you've not believed that Jesus died for you, maybe because you've been taught that I, you have to earn it. Maybe you haven't done that yet because you feel like, well, I'm not good enough. I haven't earned my way into the spot, into the kingdom 
of heaven. What I hope you're able to see from today's parable is that you cannot earn your place in the kingdom of heaven. All of us are the workers standing idly by offering nothing. But even still, Jesus calls you to himself. And through the power of the Spirit, opens our eyes and brings you into the vineyard. So if you're waiting to get your life right, you're always going to be waiting. If you're trying to be good enough to earn your spot in the kingdom of heaven, you'll always be trying. But if the Spirit of God is convicting you this morning, it's not because you've done anything to deserve it. It's simply because the sovereign grace of God the Father is revealing to you that Jesus is the Christ. Would you profess and believe today? Well, maybe this, maybe you're thinking, well, I just want to live my life a little bit more. I've heard about this Jesus thing. I know that you're supposed to confess and repent. I understand all of that, but, but I'm just, I want to live my life some more. I'll, I'll, I'll come to him later. There's still some fun I want to have. There's still some choices that I want to make. I, I'm not right now all about just sort of submitting myself over to this king and giving him my life. I, I still want control. I still want to live some of my life out. I'll settle down one day and get things right one day. I want to lovingly tell you, you're not promised another day. You're not promised another breath. And there are many in this room right now who could tell you what it's like to lose someone unexpectedly. And again, that's not a scare tactic. That's just reality. Just this week, in our city, we read of an 18-year-old Belmont student who's simply out walking on a track and an errant bullet strikes her and she lost her life simply just walking. She had her whole life in front of her. She's a student in one of the prestigious universities here in Nashville ready to start her life and it ended just like that. Again, that's, I'm not trying to scare you into anything. I just want to show you the reality. We're not promised another breath. And this idea that, well, one day I'll really get serious about Jesus. One day I'll confess and believe. One day I'll do it. We're not promised one day. Your life is a vapor. So I, again, I just want to just offer that to you that if right now you know the Spirit of God is convicting you about something and you think, oh, I'll just deal with that later, there might not be a later. But His grace is that He is dealing with you and convicting you now with an opportunity to confess and repent and believe. Two points of application for believers, and then we'll get out of here. The first one is, if we truly understand that whether it's 6 a.m. or 5 p.m., that I've said this over, and I hope this is what you walk away with, that there are loved ones out there that still need us to share the gospel with them. And so if you're concerned, or if you're, you're carrying this burden of like, man, I know 
that I'm supposed to talk to talk to my friend or talk to my family member about Jesus, but I'm scared. What are they going to think of me? What what are they going to say? I can't do it. I'm afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be nervous about that. You don't have to have it all down pat thinking, well, what if I say something wrong? What we can't do is let our fear of what someone might say or think of us keep us from sharing the truth that we know. And I promise you, if the Spirit of God is convicting you and prompting you to have a conversation about Jesus with a friend or a neighbor or a loved one, he is going to be with you in that conversation. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He said he would go with you to the ends of the earth as you share and make disciples. So don't think, oh, let's get through the holidays. I don't want to interrupt Thanksgiving. I don't want to make Christmas weird about being the Jesus guy talking about Jesus The last thing we want to hear is that you did that and then that was the last opportunity you had. The Spirit of God, if he is leading you, don't be afraid. He will be with you in that conversation. And maybe you you step out in faith and you say, you know what, I am. I'm going to share Jesus with the person that God is. But right now, you know if he's burdening you with someone in particular and you step out and share, maybe you don't see a result. Maybe they do laugh at you. Maybe they do tell you to be quiet. But what if that conversation is the planting of the seed of the gospel that someone then later comes along and the fruit is grown because you are faithful to do what God's called you to do? And be encouraged by that. What does it look like if we then bring these unbelievers in and we disciple them and we don't despise them? If they're new believers and they come to know Jesus, we as the church see that as an opportunity to come around them and walk beside them and guide them and disciple them, not as an opportunity to say, oh, you should have it all together now, and if you fall again, we're just going to point you out. It means people are going to make mistakes. It means new believers are going to fall back into the temptation of old sin. And rather than being a church that stands around and points at them, rather be a church that stands around and reaches out our hand and say, hey, come back in. Let me help you. Let me pick you back up. Discipleship is hard. I wish, part of me wishes that, that immediately once you're saved, you fully understand everything you should know and you just walk out the rest of your days fully aware and living fully according to the the scriptures. Man, wouldn't that be a blissful thing? I'd be out of a job, but you know, it'd be easier, right? But that's not, that's not how it is. So we walk alongside one another, even when we fall. But the last thing I want us to take away from this, and I'm speaking specifically to us as a church body, as we've been discussing for many months that in January, in the beginning of the year, that there are going to be churches that are going to come alongside of us to support us. Not only are they going to support us financially, but they're also going to prayerfully ask some of their people to come and be a part of our congregation to see that the work of the ministry here at Antioch continues. I don't want us to be like the workers in this parable and think well, since we've been here longer, we deserve more. I don't want us to be like the workers in this parable and go, no, 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 you don't understand. 
we've, we've been here working. These people just showed up. And I think Satan, look, any time that the church is moving in the right direction, Satan's going to do everything he can to stop that. Do you realize that? He's going to do everything in his power to get us off track. So the easy thing for him to do as we welcome in either people from the community or people from these other churches, the easiest thing he would be able to do is to go, it's us and it's them. And we can't do that. We will be one body. And we will be equally together on this mission. No matter if you have been here for decades or if you just arrived. You are welcome here, and you're one of us. And through all of our power of the Spirit, we're not going to let there be an us and a them. It'll be easy to fall into that temptation. But as God calls people alongside of us to see the mission of this church continually fulfilled, we're going to cheer on no matter who it is. No matter if it's been someone who's been here their entire life or if it's someone who's been here but a minute. We're all going to come alongside each other and we're going to find our place and we're going to link arms and we're going to see the gospel go forth in the community of Antioch. Let's consider those things and then we'll come together and sing.